0: Welcome to the National Committee on U.S. China Relations events podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good afternoon,
1: everyone. We're delighted to welcome you here. I'm Jan Barris, the Vice President of the National Committee on U.S. China Relations and you're in for a treat. We are doubly delighted to have these two gentlemen with us tonight because both of them are not only really interesting scholars, but both of them are members of a program that the National Committee runs called our Public Intellectuals Program, which focuses on the younger generation of China specialists and provides nurturing, as we like to say, for the younger generation to train them not just to be better scholars, which they are already terrific scholars, but to use the knowledge they have and some of the skills that we give them over the course of this two-year program to use that knowledge to inform the general public, whether in their own professional communities, or their own geographic communities, as well as on a broader national or regional scale. Both of them are part of that program. Uh, Rory is part of the current cohort, or cohort number 5, which just ended on September 30th, and Ben is an old-timer. He was in the second cohort that ran from about 2009 to 2011. So we're delighted to have both of them here with us today. Rory is going to start telling us about this very interesting project that he and another PIP fellow, Sheena Greetens from PIP cohort 4, have done on, and he knows this, I'm not wild about the title of his his research, his and Sheena's research, but I am very excited about the work that they've done because I was privileged enough to hear another version of what Rory's going to talk about today and I find the research and their um, telling of it very interesting and very important for the current state of relations um, between China and the United States. And then Ben is going to comment on it, and then they'll have sort of the conversation before we open it up for questions. So you have their bios in front of you, and I'm going to stop talking because I've already gone on too long.
2: Um, thank you, Jan, for that introduction, um, and thank you all for coming. And uh, I am excited. And thank you, Ben, in advance for your for your comments and questions. Uh, so today I am presenting co-authored work uh, with Sheena Griesen, who's an assistant professor at Missouri, and unfortunately she couldn't be here, but. Um, she's an uh, equal partner in the project, and I want to make sure uh, she gets credit for this, this contribution. Um, so the, the paper that we're, we're presenting today was, in some sense, in response to a larger debate going on about the China field. So, so this is research about research. It's a little bit meta in that sense. But if you've been following social media of late, and if you're, you haven't, you're probably better off. But if you have, um, you might have noticed that in the last few months in particular, there's been several pieces and and prominent uh, people coming out and accusing the China field of self-censorship. And we see some comments like this made by James Palmer, who's a journalist, um, saying that academia is a broken system and there's a fragile kind of careerism and cowardice. Uh, So this narrative that China scholars are are craven and cowardly uh, is out there. And there's another piece that came out that was probably more prominent by a journalist named Isaac Stone Fish called The Other Political Correctness came out in the New Republic Um, And here he describes a, quote, epidemic of self-censorship at U.S. universities on the subject of China, one that limits debate and fuzzles students and academics away from the topics likely to offend the Chinese Communist Party. Um, And so this is an accusation that has been been out there, and this is a side of the story that is being told uh, by a lot of people with, with a fairly broad platform. And so I think, hopefully, Sheena, the paper I'm working on with Sheena can contribute to this debate potentially sell, tell the other side of the story which has to do with the challenges of doing research in China And I'm sure many of you have done research in China or, or work you know done other things in China and the difficulties of operating in China do affect researchers um, and one of the difficulties about this is that we frankly don't know what the risks are and so as a young China scholar I remember in graduate school when you're starting to think about a dissertation and other topics uh, you simply don't know what's in-bounds, what's out-of-bounds, what can I do? If I do this, am I going to get someone in trouble, and am I going to get myself in trouble? And so the goal in this project <coughs> is really to answer three questions. Uh, what is the nature and frequency of repressive experiences? And by repressive experiences, we're, we're open to new language on this. This is the piece of the project that Jan doesn't like, <laughs> and she let me know it, as she does. Of course. Um, <laughs> But so we're struggling to come up with a label for this, but we call them repressive experiences. But these are things like being denied a visa um, or being taken for tea, which is a euphemism for being taken out by public security authorities in China, other forms of modern intimidation. What is the frequency of these experiences? So to, Is this a real problem? How often does it happen? How many people has it happened to? Uh, why does it happen? What types of people does it happen to? So that was the main goal of the project, was to try to do a survey of China scholars where we just measure these experiences and allow people to report on these experiences. Then the second set of questions is about, well, what is the effect of this environment? Uh, does it affect the product of research? So does this create a certain type of research that we see about the Chinese political system? Is it true uh, that there is an epidemic of self-censorship or that uh, the China field isn't somehow biased in favor of the Chinese Communist Party? So these are the questions that our project was hoping to answer. Uh, and the way we went about it is we, we conducted a survey of academics. We limited our sample to academics operating outside of mainland China uh, because we thought that academics operating within China is a, is a completely different category and they face a different set of experiences. But we were able to get uh, foreign scholars and Chinese scholars, so Chinese citizens, operating at American universities, European universities, Canadian, Australian, New Zealand, and so forth, Singapore, other places as well. Uh, We sent out, we we spent a good part of the spring pulling together a database of China scholars. We found 2,000 people uh, that we've identified as social scientists that study China. This is just some information on the full population. I apologize for those of you who might not be able to see it. Uh, But we included political scientists, historians, sociologists, anthropologists, uh, uh, economists, and then other people who are in law. Actually, some people who are in law identified as social scientists. So we identified about 2,000 names spreading across different countries and regions, and we sent out a survey uh, this summer, early this summer, and we got a response rate of about 30%, which frankly isn't bad, especially for academics during the summer. Uh, it's actually not a bad figure at all. So we, were, we felt that this was enough of a population that we could, uh, enough of a sample that we could draw some real conclusions. There are about 562 complete responses to this survey, Uh, And if we actually look at, you know, is this a representative of the population of social scientists, we generally feel that we have good reason to believe that. So we have a good balance in terms of of gender and region and and discipline and so forth. Interestingly, the economists responded to our survey at the lowest rate, (laughs) probably because they were sitting there thinking this is not a rational thing to do. to (laughs) survey. So we can can make fun of them a little bit for that. Um, But the survey itself um, was designed to really allow people to... (coughs) voice their opinions, and relay their experiences. So we asked them about 13 different forms of repression or intimidation that they might have experienced. And if they had an experience, we asked them to fill in when it had happened and give us a description of it. So not only do we have kind of the the frequency of these events, we also have some pretty good qualitative information as to what these experiences look like. Um, And so this is sort of the broader takeaway figure. And again, for those of you in the back, I I can walk you through it. In terms of the experiences we measured, we grouped them into three things. Things that affect access to China, so being (coughs) blacklisted, or having a visa denied, or having a visa issue, we call that access to China. Uh, The second category would be access to materials, so this is things like being denied access to an archive, um, having your materials confiscated, so some researchers reported having their notes or even their computer confiscated, um, and having interview subjects leave for no explained reason, perhaps from intimidation. And then the final uh, set of experiences, which is in some sense the most serious, is forms of monitoring and for intimidation. So being taken for tea, being taken out for an interview, uh, being physically harassed, um, being misled about the identity of someone who you've been involved with in China, or being in pressure to cooperate in some way. Um, and so just overall in terms of, of what happens to people and the incidence of these experiences, what we found is that roughly 5% of our sample reported some issue with a visa in the last 10 years. So that's roughly 5% of the sample. The number who had reported being blacklisted or banned in some ways was much lower, about 1% to 2%. I think the number is about 12 to 14 researchers uh, in total have reported that experience. In terms of the visa denials, one of the features of it, so we have these sort of anecdotes. So this is someone who said, I had received a formal invitation from the government, but my visa was refused. There had been no indication on my passport that the visa had been denied, but I was verbally told that the application wasn't approved. So, so one of the themes of, of this, these sorts of experiences is that people uh, really never know uh, why they're getting denied or what's going on here. It could have been bureaucratic mismanagement, um, or it could be related to the content of the research. And the Chinese government, at least from our data, doesn't appear to actually routinely deny like actually check the box deny uh, on a visa application, they will just refuse to approve it. Uh, which one of our respondents said that this was actually courteous because that meant when you applied for a visa again, you don't have to check the box, you've been denied. So it's, anyway. Um, so, the, so the visa issue, um, <coughs> this was our, our data on that. Um, in terms of access to materials, we one of the themes, and I think Ben, ben picked up on this as well in our, our conversation, is that Access to archives seems to be a really big issue, especially for historians uh, who rely heavily on this. So roughly 25, I think it was 27% of people uh, had had reported having difficulty getting access to an archive or being denied materials in an archive. Some good quotes here. The manager told me, even if you knew the governor, I still wouldn't let you in in terms of getting access to one archive. Um, Again, some of the responses that people confront when they're in the archives is that (laughs) material is being digitized or it's unavailable. Um, And again, this is plausibly ambiguous, right? So it could be that the material is being digitized, or it could be that uh, the material is is being made unavailable to a foreign researcher. Overall, these experiences, we were able to measure time trends, because we asked people when this had happened to them. Um, In general, a lot of our lines are very small and flat, because these experiences are quite rare but there is evidence in the data to suggest that getting access to archives is getting worse. And I'm not a historian, but but I did spend some time through PIP with some historians, and there is a feeling among that community, at least to me, um, in the sense that doing historical research in China is getting more and more difficult. The Chinese government is sanitizing the archives, making it more difficult to get access, and dissertations that were possible 10 (coughs) years ago or 15 years ago are no longer possible today. Um, which is a problem, of course, for any social science project because it, it means there's a lack of replicability, right? So you can't, well, ideally, uh, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, future historians would be able to go look at the same materials. And that seems, the, the materials themselves are in flux in present-day China. Um, finally, kind of the more, um, I think, more serious experiences of being taken for tea or monitored or followed. We had 9% of our sample, um, ten, you know, about 50 people in total, I think it was more like 55, 56, um, had reported some instance where they had been taken to DU or interviewed or monitored by authorities. Um, these experiences had different flavors to them. So sometimes it was in a police station. Sometimes it was in a place where you would get tea. Sometimes it was in a hotel room. Um, often, uh, these experiences seem to be li- linked to field work. Uh, in particular, some somebody doing something or being around an event that attracted attention often a person would be confused for a journalist by local officials. So one thing that I'll talk about in a little bit is that the determinants of these experiences are different by the experience. So these sort of run-ins with with local public security officers are usually driven by local government officials catching wind of of some researcher and then trying to learn more information. Accessing an archive is another good way to get detained in China because that, that librarian or whoever's in charge of the archive will often alert authorities. Um, so I can just read this. An Then he asked me for my identity papers. He also asked me to see my research notes and explain when he said the policeman then took me to a nearby police station, and he and his colleagues asked me questions for about an hour to an hour and a half. Um, uh, this is another just example. A day after being admitted to an archive, the dean of my host institution invited me to a meeting at which we discussed my research in the presence of a middle-aged man whose job was not disclosed to me. And the dean indicated that access to the archive was inconvenient and would no longer be possible. Um, these experiences, there is no nothing in our data that suggests that these are getting more frequent over time. But I would just be we always try to be cautious with this because these experiences are so few and far between that it's really difficult to draw much, much of anything. But I think, for some, there's this narrative that things have gotten really, much worse under Xi Jinping, especially in the last two or three years. And at least in our data, for these types of experiences for foreign scholars, um, it does not appear to be the case.
1: Can you explain the chart that was?
2: Oh, this is my fault. Yeah, I, I did the classic mistake of just putting something up and then not actually explaining it. So this is time on the x-axis. This is just the count of experiences in our data set of people having the, the interviewed by authorities. And so this just shows. And the, the other one I showed was for archival access. So this is just like a, a time series <coughs> plot of, of being taken for tea. And if someone was interviewed several times? Yeah, so we, uh, we allowed people to fill in multiple expe- uh, experiences. And your numbers are so small, five people. Say that again, sorry? That,
3: that's five on the left. Yes. Right? yes. So you're averaging about five people. Somebody was maybe the same person
2: for Yes. Well, and, and some people did respond multiple times. So we we allowed we said, please document every time you've been asked for tea. But for most people, it's not like they've been asked for tea six or seven times. It's kind of a once or a few times in a career type event. But yeah, so the, the count is small. It's important to remember that we're only capturing, you know. 600 out of maybe 2,000 China scholars in the field. So the, the, the I, I usually try to speak in terms of proportions as opposed to the raw counts. Um, so it's 9% of the field has had this experience within the last 10 years. But well, that's a long time window as well. That was how the question was asked. Have you had this experience in the last 10 years? Um, in terms of the most ex- severe experiences, so there were only a handful of people that reported being physically intimidated or detained against their will for lengthy periods of time. Um, This person um, was detained, let's see, I I don't want to read the whole thing. I was awakened one morning, placed in a van with two police officers and driven to blank. I was not told the reason, the trip took two days, so they're spending two days with police officers after not being told. We spent the night at a hotel. I was detained for four hours and interviewed by the police. My camera was confiscated. After four hours of much conversation with the police, I was released. They thought I might have been a journalist. So of all the experiences in our data, this particular one is probably the most severe. This is a person that has been detained for multiple days. Um, I think one thing that maybe will come out in the Q&A and we can talk more about is it's important to not be too alarmist and too extreme about how we interpret some of these events. Um, and so these, these experiences are harrowing and are things to be very worried about. Um, but in terms of actual field work in China, relative to other authoritarian systems, um, there are other places that are much worse. And we talked about this in the podcast about there was an Italian graduate student um, who was conducting field work in Egypt for his dissertation, and he was tortured and killed and found in a ditch. Um, and so one, one slightly positive finding for us is that there is no, there is no evidence in our data that the Chinese government physically harms, <laughs> commits violence against China scholars. So we have no evidence of that. There are recent instances, so Anne Marie Brady is a China scholar um, based in Australia who uh, her house was, in Australia New or New Zealand? New Zealand, Zealand, New Zealand, Zealand. excuse me. Um, and there's evidence that her house was burglarized, perhaps in response to hum- some of her scholarship, ironically, on China's overseas influence operation. So, that mm. incident was not captured in our survey, and that's a very serious offense. That's intimidation going abroad outside of Chinese borders. Um, but I just think it's important for, I, I, what I don't want is that this paper becomes alarmist and, and causes people um, to be accessible. So so those abroad. weren't in Tibet or Xinjiang. So I, 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 as part of the project, we try to anonymize things as much as we can, so I, I won't reveal because the, the, the field is small enough so that I don't want to reveal the identity. But it's a different analysis if it's in Xinjiang. Yes, genre yes. so events. so in terms of the determinants of these experiences, especially these sort of physical monitoring and, and intimidation, it is true that people operating in Western China seem to be at a higher risk for these types of experiences. That's And that's probably fairly intuitive for those in, in the room. Um, this is another, I, I want in the interest of time, I'll keep going, but this person was detained for three days in a local hotel. The main focus was on my overseas study and research. I pretended to cooperate and then reported to my university and the police when I came back. Um, so again, these are, these are real experiences. And so the way we kind of categorize this, I'm going to just keep going in the interest of time. The way, the way we summarize this is that these experiences, these repressive experiences or experiences of int- interference or intimidation are rare, um, but they are real and they collectively present a barrier to the conduct of research in China and certainly a psychological barrier that anybody doing research in China, especially young researchers or researchers of Chinese heritage, people have to confront this calculation of am I going to get in trouble? Is someone around me going to get hurt? Uh, Is my friend going to get hurt? It's often collaborators, uh, research assistants, translators and so forth that that bear the brunt of, of these sorts of risks. And so we were able to document that these experiences are, are real uh, though they are they are rare um, in terms of what determines whether or not these things happen to people uh, one of the findings that we, we, we show is that it really depends on the experience and so there seems to be a separate logic for visa denials versus being taken for D or physical things on the ground so if something happens to you on the ground it's usually, you've attracted the attention of local authorities by attending a protest or interviewing some people or perhaps being in a certain village. It's not like they're sitting there waiting, reading your work published in the China Quarterly, waiting for you to come to a village and then getting you. It, that just that's, does not bear out in the data. The visa denial and visa access thing does seem to be loosely linked to research topic. So people working on ethnicity, Xinjiang, Tibet, we all know the example of the Xinjiang 13, Uh, these sorts of folks do seem to be at a differentially higher risk, but it is not deterministic. And what do I mean by that? Meaning there are plenty of people working on Tibet Xinjiang ethnicity who are not having any issues whatsoever, who are not having visa issues, um, who haven't been taken for tea. And conversely, there are people that have had visa issues that work on things like uh, gender or uh, security or, or other topics, the environment, other topics that we might at face value think are less sensitive. And so it's not simply that if you work on this topic, you will get in trouble. If you don't, you won't. It's, it's much more fuzzy than that, I guess, is a good way to put it. In terms of, in general, it doesn't seem like the experiences we document have increased under Xi Jinping except archival issues. Um, but I don't. I, again, I want to be very careful with that conclusion because there are a lot of things that our survey doesn't measure, like how difficult is it to get interview subjects, or how difficult is it to run a survey, uh, and so forth. Or have you been invited to give a talk in China? I haven't been invited for a couple years now. Maybe it's because nobody cares about my research. But, um, so there are, there are some... We, we document a very specific form of experience, and it doesn't seem like things have gotten that much worse for these experiences, but that's not to say the research climate hasn't changed. Okay, so now let's, let's talk briefly about the kind of the self-censorship issue and, and political sensitivities. Um, so this is a chart that shows, again, I, I apologize for those in the back. Across different fields, this top bar shows the proportion of the sample that believes their research is sensitive, with very sensitive, somewhat sensitive, and so forth. And then the bottom shows the percentage of people that have actually received some indication from the Chinese government whether it's through a colleague or some sort of direct interaction with Chinese government officials, um, that their research is sensitive. Uh, And the takeaway here that I want you to come away with is that most people in the field believe their research is sensitive. So 68% of people sample-wide believe their research is either very sensitive or somewhat sensitive. Um, But a, a, a minority of people have actually received some indication as such. Um, so I think I forget the exact proportion. I think it's somewhere around the, the territory. of 20% of people have received some indication. Most China scholars have never had any indication that the research is sensitive and have never, um, never actually had any one of these repressive experiences. So 60, 60% of the sample, myself included, I can speak from personal experience, um, have never had anything like this happen to them whatsoever. And so one kind of cynical conclusion would be, well, look how... People are overestimating the risks and over overestimating the sensitivity of their research. I actually think that's the wrong interpretation. I think this is an environment uh, where things are ambiguous and we we tell each other stories, especially young researchers. We we are trying to feel out where the lines are. Um, And so it is easy to think that your research is sensitive um, while not being it's not like the Chinese government has an institution where you can apply and say, hey, Is my research sensitive? And they'll give you a clear response. Like, that's not how they operate, right? They operate in an ambiguous form. Um, In terms of of this theme came across, uh, this is like a classic idea in the Chinese politics literature. You might have read Perry Link's Anaconda and the Chandelier, which is this famous statement of this. Um, But one of the key themes of our findings on this was that people really felt that the research environment was ambiguous, and ambiguity plus risk leads to self-censorship. I think sometimes the image of censorship or repression is larger than the reality. At the same time, authoritarian states are adept at creating fuzzy boundaries precisely because they know what people will self-censor and stay far away from when they perceive a boundary in order to avoid crossing it. You never know where the border is. You only know when you have crossed it. Um, in terms, There's been some discussion, again, among journalists that China scholars don't care about self-censorship and kind of willingly self-censor. Uh, I can say confidently, based on our data, that that is not true. Uh, I think it was 68% or 70% of China scholars believed self-censorship was an issue for the field. And some people might say, oh, well, that means everybody's self-censoring. And actually, my interpretation of it, reading the open-ended responses, is that people are worried about this, and they are very thoughtful about it and are trying to do research responsibly that is critical and honest while still protecting themselves and their research subjects. So I, I look at this more about vigilance, like people are worried about the issue, rather than that they are cowardly and craven. And I think that comes across um, in the open-ended responses. And one of the key themes was that we need to be thinking very carefully before we start using this term, what exactly is self-censorship? So if you're not doing a project because you think it's infeasible or irresponsible, and it could get someone in trouble, that's not self-censorship, that's called ethical research. Um, And so many of our researchers Kind of came out very strongly about this and and described the great lengths they go to to think through the ethics of their research. Much of the self-censorship that goes on is done to protect colleagues and informants who live in China with little chance of leaving. If there is conflict ever between engaging in self-censorship and maintaining ethical research practice, I will choose to maintain ethical research practices. Another person who is an anthropologist the anthropologists had the best responses. Economists, the worst. The anthropologists, the best. The anthropologists creed your first responsibility is the safety, security, and well-being of your research collaborators or informants. Anthropologists refer to their, their research uh, counterparts as informants, not subjects. This is more important than your publication or your tenure or your degree. If you think in these terms and observe cues of whether people are comfortable or want to cooperate, you should be okay. And so that behavior of trying to protect people is is should not be considered self-censorship. We had other comments in our open-ended responses are, should we be calling this self-censorship, which in some sense puts the blame <coughs> on the China scholar, or should we be calling it censorship, which is putting the blame on the authoritarian government that is potentially creating this environment? And so I, I there have been a lot of very negative reactions to some of the journalistic pieces that have come out blaming the China field for being... Craven, and I, I personally think, based on these responses, that China scholars are very aware of the self-censorship problem. Um, and we can talk more about this in the Q&A. I'm sure some questions will come up. Um, but for me, I, I think the way I see the issue, and this is not reflected in our data, this is my own opinion, and I don't speak for Sheena on this, um, I look at the research that's being produced, at least in political science. And if we're worried about self-censorship, um, the question is, are we producing, as a group, a body of scholarship that is excessively positive about the Chinese government? Uh, and the answer, I can say from first-hand experience, is categorically no. Um, if you read any political science journals, and I'm, say- I'm sure the same is true for law and history and other fields, um, there is a lot of very critical, honest research being done, and the hot topics in political science are things like repression and propaganda and human rights, public opinion, ideology, historical events like Cultural Revolution, and regions like Xinjiang, Tibet, and others. And so, if anything, we might be guilty of perhaps gravitating towards research topics that are sensitive because there are professional payoffs to that. So I don't think we're in a world where the China field is not being critical enough about the Communist Party. I I just don't believe that to be the case. Um, One theme I, I do want to emphasize, which I haven't done enough to emphasize, is that the threats and risks are different for Chinese scholars people who are Chinese citizens, and people who are foreigners. Um, and even people who are Chinese-American, who have some family ties to China, the, the threats are different. They are communicated differently. Uh, often, those people will report instances of, oh, my father, or my sister, or my mother uh, was contacted by people within the Chinese government about my research. So they will use the family to intimidate the China scholar. This is known as relational repression. This happens to Chinese citizens. Uh, it happens to China scholars as well. And so we, this is, is worth emphasizing. And so I think this, that's why I also uh, think a lot of people in the China field, especially those who are, are ethnically Chinese, um, we shouldn't be excessively critical of individual scholars uh, because you never know what the constraints the person is operating under, what family members they have, and what kind of threats have been levied against them. Um, so I, would, I will close here. I wanted to just briefly raise a couple policy recommendations for us to start thinking, because this is an issue that's being discussed um, and has kind of been folded into the agenda of the Trump administration about um, kind of promoting equal footing with China. So the, the academic freedom issue is currently being discussed. From my perspective, um, one thing we can do to start is to just provide scholars with information about what are the risks, and I've, I've personally been Happy to hear that this paper has been of some use, and people are circulating it to their graduate students and undergraduates just to try to educate people as to what the risks are. I think that's step one. Uh, I think we should avoid imputing the integrity of individual China scholars. I don't think that is a healthy behavior, and I think it's in some sense blaming the victim. We should be pointing the blame, um, if anything, towards the government that is perpetuating this. Uh, the third thing I would say is we need to place the problem in in the appropriate perspective, and so this is an issue. Uh, but in some, we came out with this report right in the middle of the summer or towards the end of the summer uh, when information at, about Xinjiang in particular was starting to really come to a fore. And so for us as scholars to be complaining about repression or, or whatever we want to call it uh, when hundreds of thousands of people are, are potentially being put in, in vocational training centers, if that's what we want to call them, against their will, um, is a bit, I, I think, we, we need to put the issue in perspective. So of all the things that we should be working on or or the U.S. government should be working on, this is important, but there are are much more severe abuses going on. Um, I will say I think there is an opportunity here for universities in particular. To me, the appropriate policy actor is is the university. Um, So one of the themes that unfortunately did come across in our survey is that most China scholars do not feel well supported by their institutions. And again, you can you can understand why this is the case. It's a university administration who maybe a given university has a handful of China scholars. These are people who don't know too much about China. They're working across a lot of different countries. And so we need to help universities understand how to deal with China when things like academic freedom issues come up, whether it's an on-campus speaker uh, or a visa issue, we need to help universities coordinate with each other. So the next time a UCSD is threatened. Uh, what can UCSD do to respond, but what can Berkeley do or UNC Chapel Hill or Princeton or all these other universities? How can we have a shared statement of principles such that an infringement against one scholar or university is, is taken collectively? I think that's hopefully what this, this report and other reports, that's the conversation that I'd like to see have. So I'll leave it there. Thank you for listening, uh, and I look forward to the discussion. Thank you.
4: Great, so uh, thank you, Rory, and thank you also to Sheena, who's not here. This is incredibly rich and uh, incredibly timely, and I just want to commend both of you for thinking of doing this, but also for doing it so quickly, right? The survey is completed in, uh, in uh, June, and is already out. It uh, makes me think that I'm a little slow on some of the data I've been collecting for a few years here, uh, and there's an immense amount of rich material here to discuss, and I don't want to monopolize the questions, but I'll do it for... A few minutes. Uh, I should actually add that I'm heavily jet lagged as well. So uh, if I am incoherent, that's why I was in China uh, on Saturday. The um, the so maybe I'll just start with three or four uh, broad questions or comments to get us going. Uh, one observation, which is, I also think that one of the things that comes through in the paper and I think there's also the shared experience many of us have had, is there's a lot of diversity in China, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it may depend on the region, but often it depends on the individual with whom you're dealing, their level of comfort, right? Uh, you know, you, you can have certain things approved very quickly if somebody's willing to take responsibility. And this links into my first question is, I mean, it is striking to see the historians having the clearest experience. And, of course, that's maybe not surprising because access to archives is both a situation where there's a, a yes or no answer, right? So it's either yes or no, and where there's a person who's responsible for giving you that answer, mm-hmm. which is often not the case with, you know, if you're having small group interviews or one-on-one interviews, it's a less it's a, it's a, less account, maybe it's a situation where someone's less likely to get in direct trouble for it, as opposed to someone saying, hey, you let this foreign scholar into these archives. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering, do you actually think that history is, or do you have a sense that history is being treated more carefully than maybe some contemporary topics, or is that just a manifestation of, of some of the dynamics I just mentioned?
2: That's a, that's a great question, and I'm not a historian, so I, I'm wary of going out too far on a limb, but um, I think you're right that the, the historian projects are either made, made or, or broken depending on whether or not you can get the document you need, whereas political scientists, sociologists, people in the legal field... There's usually a way, if you can't interview one person, you can find another person. If you can't ask this survey question, you can ask another question. So I think that, that insight that you had is, is, is correct. Um, but in terms of, of the policing of, of, of history, I, I, I do think that this is a recent trend. And that came across a lot of our, our um, open-ended responses. And I was fortunate to be on the public intellectual program with a few great historians. And I think they are thinking about writing a piece about the sanitization uh, sanitation of, of history within China, um, and so, and again, if you think about the, the the academic librarian in China, the archivist in China, what is the incentive for them to allow some foreign PhD student to get access to materials about, uh, obviously, periods of, of history we know to be sensitive, like the Cultural Revolution, but also other periods farther back um, that maybe have implications for China's current territorial claims. They, they have, I think, those individuals within the Chinese government, um, have an incentive to be risk averse but I think your point one thing I, I failed to mention is that I think it's always important that we don't treat China as a monolith and we say China does this China does that I, I think that language that sentence structure is incorrect and there are a lot of people and I'm sure you've had similar experiences within the Chinese government and within the Chinese system that do take great pains to promote academic freedom and so I, I don't want our findings um, to be kind of do a disservice to those folks who are taking risks to help us with our research. So I, I, it's important to remember that it is not a monolith.
4: Right. And, and so maybe a, a follow-up or a related question, right, is you mentioned, I think you mentioned in your talk and also in the paper, there is, I guess, a perception that it's getting harder, certainly to do the types of field work that many of us have done. And I'll just add to that that I don't think this is a point that's targeted necessarily at foreign scholars at all. I think many of my cho- Chinese colleagues would say it's actually harder to do field work now than it was mm-hmm. a few years ago. Uh, and there are, of course, many responses one could have to this. I mean, one is it's actually remarkable, I think, the level of access many of us have had over the last decade or two decades. There's a lot that's possible in China. As you said, it might not be possible in other authoritarian systems. Uh, I often think it's amazing how friendly and welcoming and accessible Chinese judges are to me, and, and probably with all respect, probably it's easier for me to get access and do interviews of Chinese judges than it would be for my Chinese colleagues to get access to and do interviews of American judges uh, in some contexts. Um, but it is changing, right? And it is a little bit harder to do this research. And so I wonder, you know, what strategies, what, what, are the, what are the lessons for us going forward, if we're in a situation where some of the traditional, certainly field work-based work, the qualitative work, interviews or surveys is harder to do, what are the takeaways maybe for all of us, as, or maybe from the perspective of political science, as to what's the, what are the best ways to conduct research? On China. Let me just, before we answer that, let me just add a, uh, a sort of footnote to that, which is I think there's another factor that comes into this uh, when it comes to how easy it is to do research in China, which is also maybe your status and age in the field. And you talked a lot about how sometimes, right, for younger scholars, it's hard to know what you can do. I actually think there's a lot that I could do when I was younger that I can't do now uh, maybe because I'm at an allegedly well-known American university, I don't know. But, but I think that you know when you're a young graduate student, sometimes you can just walk in somewhere and conduct interviews that you can't do when you're maybe a better-known professor. So that's a, just an aside to that. But I wonder more generally what you think is, is the right response for all of us who do field work or survey work in China.
2: Um, that's, a, that's a great question. I, I think one thing that we're, we're seeing in the, the China political science field is that even though some doors might be closing or in the process of closing, there are others that are always opening up. And it's important to remember that the generation, maybe two generations above me, those folks were trying to study China from Hong Kong often, right? So they were they were not able to even access China to begin with. And so people always find a way. And, and one thing we're observing now is that at least in political science, um, there are a lot of data sources online that there couldn't be that there wouldn't be even five or ten years ago. So I study the National People's Congress, which is the legislative system. The legislative branch is actually pretty darn transparent and if you get down to the provincial level or the municipal level congresses, there's a lot of information available. The court system, which is what you study, there's a database online with how many is it? 30 million? 50 million, 50 million court cases are online, uh, which wasn't the case five years ago. And so there are, there are sources of information that are ready to be mined. My personal advice when I'm working with graduate students is uh, I would not advise them to craft a dissertation that requires heavy cooperation from the Chinese government. And I personally, um, I'm a junior faculty member, I am under a bit more time pressure. I do some surveys that require government buy-in and I've unfortunately been a little disappointed with how long things have taken. So there are, there are ways around this and there are, I think the using existing online publicly available information is one, one thing that we can work on moving forward.
4: Just on this. Um, for those interested in the history, a shout out to Stanley Loveman, who just put all of his research notes from the 1960s in yeah. Hong Kong online. So if you want to see what it was like to do research back then, yeah. you can go and look at all of Stanley's <laughs> notes. Huge credit to him for doing that. It's, it's fascinating and it's a fantastic resource. The um, Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would agree, right, there is this immense amount of data out there, although I think that as it gets harder to do field work in China, there's also a temptation to rely on this data. And, and as we all know, this data is incomplete, and so we can sometimes be misled by the data. Right? One of the things we talk about in our work on the, on the courts is this need to sort of combine the quantitative work with big data with the traditional qualitative work to the degree it's still possible because I think that you know we need both types of research, but also we know that there's this immense amount of data, but we also know that data is often incomplete.
2: Well, and I, and I think you asked about research strategies. Another recommendation that came through from the survey, not from us, is that uh, working with Chinese academics is potentially com- becoming more and more important. Uh, it, one, to make sure your interpretation is correct and you understand the nuances of the data that you're working with. And two, often Chinese scholars have more lines of communication open with the government and so they're, they're better able to gauge what is sensitive and what is possible. And so I think more collaborations between um, scholars operating within China and outside of China, are, are that's potentially important more valuable moving forward.
4: I completely agree, and I also think it can help you make some, uh, avoid making some bad mistakes, do yeah. I? Just thinking of a research project we had uh, until Saturday when I found out that something we were doing was completely wrong or completely misread our data, so uh, uh, I can tell you about that over dinner, but the, um, the the yeah I want to shift a little bit and, and go back to this broader question of censorship or self-censorship, um, and I wonder, I mean, if you could comment a little bit about what you think are the, the roots of this narrative of self-censorship, or do you see this coming up a lot more in the last year or two, this argument that not just scholars, but universities are censoring or self-censorship. And I wonder, you know, and one of your, you know, one of the, the, th- the things we learned from your and Sheena's paper, obviously, is that maybe it's not quite as prevalent as we thought, but I think it's worth thinking a little bit about where this is coming from as well. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about where you think this narrative is coming from.
2: So I, I should say that it's, it wasn't our intention to be put in a role where we're kind of defending the China field from these accusations, in part because the reason why we did this paper was because we were worried about this issue as well. And so that's we were wanting to understand repression and self-censorship, and that's why we did the survey. Um, so I, I think it's important for us to emphasize that's kind of our intellectual intellectual trajectory with the project. In terms of why this narrative is out there, um, not to be too critical of the journalistic community, but. Methodologically, one of the things that I've observed in the last year or so is that there's a tendency to write pieces um, where someone is looking for a problem, Uh, they go out and do some interviews looking for examples of this problem, Uh, they find them, and then they extrapolate and create some sort of claim about frequency or incidence of the problem, which is fundamentally, from a social scientist's perspective, I don't want to get too jargony or two on my high horse here, but that's a that's a fundamentally problematic research methodology. It's called confirmation bias. right? So when we, we have an intuition, then we seek information that confirms that intuition. Um, and, and I'm not going to name specific names, but I've seen a little bit of that recipe in some of the pieces about self-censorship. Um, and this is, I think, damaging to the field, because what it does is it overlooks the All of the other instances where, you know, you can find an epidemic about anything if you look hard enough. And if you do that, you're going to overlook all of the instances in the China field, whether it's at the university level or the individual scholar level, where people are showing real courage. Um, And there was a report that came out in the Wilson Center that I actually, I think um, her research methodology, she was very upfront about this. She said, I'm going to look for self-censorship just to see if the problem exists. And that seemed very careful to me. Um, She avoided making conclusions about how bad it was. She just wanted to see whether the problem exists. And she did a nice job in the report um, of documenting all of the instances where universities had received pressure from Chinese counterparts in response to a speaker. Usually it was the Dalai Lama. It's not just UCSD that has had this issue. And all of the instances where they stood up and said, actually, no, this this is something that's important to us. And so that's my, that I think is the root cause of this narrative is that it's sort of cherry picking anecdotes um, and without doing justice to a lot of the more courageous acts that are happening that maybe aren't as newsworthy and, and are maybe not uh, kind of fitting with the current narrative about China and you and the u.s political system
4: That's great. and on this I mean I wondered also maybe I guess you didn't necessarily ask China scholars about risks in the other direction but did you do you either personally have any reflections on or did you pick up in the data and the responses at all a sense that there's a concern that China scholars might be pushed in the other direction by rising U.S.-China tensions, by rising critical discourse about China here. I'm glad. I'm really glad you asked that because I, I think that's an equal equally problematic
2: situation because the the China scholarship on China should be free of ideological influence, right? So our goal is to try to find the truth, whatever that truth may be. And so on the one hand. Um, the accusation has been that we're too worried about the Chinese Communist Party, therefore we're trying to, we, we are too positive about things on that. I don't think that's actually true. The other side is, if we live in an environment where the integrity of you as a scholar is going to be linked to how critical you are in the Communist Party, that's a real problem, because then it's going to create a body of scholarship that is biased, negative about the party, uh, and then we're going to misunderstand the very system we're trying to understand. And so, That accusation of self-censorship, that narrative, I think, is equally problematic. Um, From my own experience, I have done some research where my data shakes out and things kind of are a little bit rosier on the Chinese political system and sometimes they're less rosy. Uh, Maybe this is is just too anecdotal, but what I found is whenever I try to make an argument that's at all positive about the Chinese government, I face maybe a little bit of a harder time uh, because people are trying, like especially in the review process, the academic review process. So I'm not convinced that we don't have the opposite problem, which is that we are creating an environment where you cannot say anything remotely positive about the Chinese government. So my hope is that um, our findings and, and the broader discourse can kind of get away from linking someone's integrity as a scholar to what they conclude and more about what is their research method and have they got done good, honest research regardless of what it concludes. But I do think this that's the extension of the self-censorship debate. If it keeps going and we get to a point where people are viewed as apologists or labeled as apologists, I think that's extremely dangerous for our understanding of China.
4: I have to confess when I was reading the paper uh, on the plane back from China on the weekend, the penultimate paragraph of your paper has a reference to visa denials. Mm. And having just been in China, I was thinking you're talking about visa, den- visa denials by the US of, of scholars from China because yeah. That's all I was hearing about last week in Beijing is how many people are getting visas tonight. There, that's not what you were talking about. But I, the um, the the on the uh, sort of broader ethical questions, right? It was also interesting in the paper to me that although there's a lot of agreement, right, that we should all be ethical in terms of protecting our sources, the most important thing is don't put anyone at risk simply for talking to you or for using the information. I detected some disagreement from the people responding to your survey as to whether or not scholars also had an ethical obligation to speak out about injustice, right? Mm -hmm. They obviously shouldn't be censoring and they should be protecting their sources, but there was a clear difference in some of the responses as to whether or not you actually had to speak out publicly with some people saying, look, I'm a scholar. I don't think my role is necessarily to wade into these things. And just in the current climate, I was also thinking that could go the other way, right? So so many of us feel like we should be critical of, of both. China and the U.S. government when they behave badly, mm-hmm. but not everyone agrees with that, and, and maybe some scholars feel like their best contribution is just to do scholarship, but, so there's a there's a related risk which is, or related issue, which is in the current environment, you know, just China scholars' positions becoming more precarious because they're going to be, as you suggested, criticized if they say anything about China, but maybe also criticized if they don't speak out about what's going on in the U.S. as well.
2: Yeah, and, and I think um, the Xinjiang issue in particular has really hit home for a lot of the China scholar community and the broader China observer community as to what are we doing. Um, And there has been this Xinjiang initiative, which I'm sure some of you are familiar with, um, brought forth by, I believe, Kevin Carrico and Jerry Cohen. Am I missing somebody? I I don't know. if Someone might know better. But um, the goal of the initiative is to, for those of us who are giving public talks, um, if you've signed on, it means you have a commitment to raise the issue in your talk. So I'm actually a signatory and I hopefully have fulfilled that, that obligation um, and, and what we've, not actually that many people signed on, I think it was only 100 or 150, maybe that number is higher now um, and again this kind of feeds this narrative Oh, well, look the China community isn't doing enough on issues of Xinjiang um, I don't really know where I personally fall on that I hope more people sign on but I've also talked to a lot of people who haven't signed on and their argument is well do we really think this is going to make a difference Um, Do we really think that this is going to change public opinion uh, of towards the Chinese government in any meaningful way? And many people, many people who are academics simply view their role as to do the best scholarship they can about the issue that they're experts on. Um, And their role is not to write op-eds, not to be public intellectuals, not to be activists. And so that's a very personal decision about what you think your job is as an academic. And then another thing I would say is that from our data what we find is that people's personal constraints are often hidden, family constraints, threats that have been levied against them, their professional working environment, their, their career track. And so th- we should never have any mechanism where it's sort of a litmus test for how critical you are of the Communist Party because that does a disservice to the people who are under broader, broader cons- professional constraints. So for me personally, I signed on because my feeling was you know, I, I'm a foreign scholar, I don't have very many social ties in China, I'm at a a well-resourced institution um, that has a history of protecting its scholars. And so I I felt that I was in position to sign on, but I respect the decision of other people to to not sign on.
4: So So there's an immense amount of expertise in this room as well. So I thought that maybe at this moment I would turn it over to the audience. I know we're recording. Do we have a mic for the... I apologize. My responses are too long. Uh, But so I don't know (laughs) if you want to call people. I want to call people. Maybe we to sure. a couple. Uh, yeah. yeah, sure. Uh, maybe s- please introduce yeah. yourself. Yeah. We're recording, right? So we need yes. be yeah. I'm Joan
5: Kaufman from the yeah. Schwartzman Scholars Program. Yes. So, uh, the first thing I want to ask you is about, did you do an analysis of the responders and the non-responders in your data set to look at whether there was any response bias? Like mm-hmm. people who had a bad experience, did they tend to fill in your survey versus people who didn't? Because I think that's important. That yeah. would skew your data even more so. Um, you know, you already found that it wasn't that big an issue, or the, your response of five people, you know, whatever might even be less proportion, uh, less of a proportion of the people, uh, if you looked at your whole data set. So I'm just wondering whether there was any response bias there. And the second question, that's just about your survey data, was did you find any difference in people who actually work with the government or government researchers together with their other academic partners in China? No, of course, I don't work on a very... You mean much you work with the U.S. government? No, yeah, the sorry. Chinese okay, government. Yeah. I mean, I work on health research for the most part in my mm-hmm. career. Um, and I, a lot of the research I've done has been in collaboration with the government as kind of policy-related research aimed at improving, you know, policies and programs in China. And rather than you know, of course, publishing all that stuff for me and with my colleagues, but I just wonder if there's a difference. You know, and many of those colleagues on the government side facilitate the research. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they open the doors, so it's okay to go do research in rural China, in yeah. villages, because it's you know coming through the government system, mm-hmm. and um, you know, it, so there's there's a difference there about you know using the system. Open the doors versus just being a researcher who comes in and doesn't <coughs> tries to you know do a research project and publish on it. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if the, you asked any questions about that because I think those types of researchers haven't had much problem with access at all actually because they're much more within the system or considered Western China or
4: something like that, right?
2: Yeah, so th- those are both great questions. So I'll, I'll answer them in order. So the response bias question. So unfortunately, it's impossible for us to know. Uh, if our respondents had a higher incidence of these issues than our non-respondents because we don't know how bad it is among the non-respondents. So we, we can never answer that question. But what we can look at are things we can measure in both groups. And so if you look at demographic information, age, gender, um, region, country of origin, discipline, our data ties pretty darn well to the population of China scholars. So at least on demographic information, it looks representative to us. But the biases you raised, they could really go in either direction, right? So it's, oh, I'm angry. I see a link from a random person I don't know about an experience on repression in the China field. I had a repressive experience. I want to respond. That's one issue. Uh, the other issue is, oh, I had a repressive experience. I'm scared. Therefore, I don't want to respond. Uh, so they. So it's, hard, it's impossible to know. We did get some feedback uh, in both directions. Um, I, so it's, I, I cannot tell you. So so this is just our estimate. It's the I think the best that we can do, the best that can be produced. I can't tell you if it's too high or too low. Um, I will say one thing we did in the survey that I think protected people is we are never releasing this data. So so this data, usually in an academic project, you post your data set online. Anybody could analyze it. We said at the outset that your respondents, the only people will see th- that will see them, will be Sheena and myself they will never be linked to you, they will never be posted, and all the results are, are presented in aggregate or de- anonymized form. So there's, we don't think that people have a reason to believe that their responses are gonna somehow get out and be used to persecute them. And so hopefully we avoided that issue, but I'm afraid that's the best answer I can give. But you're, this is the right question to be asking, and it's, it's something that we, that we thought quite a, little, a lot about. Um, the second issue on, on kind of people who are sort of teacher like within the system and people who are without the system, Um, So if you look at the data, economists tend to view that the research is less sensitive and they tend to have fewer issues. And when I think of this type, I think of like a Scott Rozelle type, like someone who has a lot of connections, um, has been working for decades with the Chinese government and does projects that are large in scale with the cooperation of the government on a policy issue. And I think that type of research, we should should talk to him and others like him. I think that type of research is alive and well. that's sort of field-specific, right? So if I'm studying uh, corruption in China or protest in China or human rights, uh, it's going to be hard for me to, to find kind of my way my on the Chinese side that's going to facilitate that sort of project. So I, I think it's discipline-specific, people operating in health, uh, in the econ, uh, social, like popla- population demographics. I think it might be easier for them to develop those relationships. I'd be curious maybe, Ben, t- for you to talk about law because I know there's a history of of legal collaboration and, and places like the Yale China Law Center have a lot of Chinese legal scholars flowing through. So I think you're you're, you're dead right that that type of scholar has lower level incidence of, of these sorts of issues. Unfortunately we didn't ask, this is the, the problem of survey research is you think about questions you should have asked and you can, you can never go back. So we didn't ask that question of how much do you work with the Chinese government but my hunch based on the data and the open-ended responses is that you're your intuition is correct.
4: Just hand that. I think yeah. you're about to see a wave of research on lawyers in China, yeah. Yeah. because it's a lot easier to talk to lawyers than to talk to judges right now. Yeah. Uh, um, but I think generally the level of exchange remains pretty high, uh, but maybe it's a little bit harder than the past. But I think generally where we're seeing a change is on your ability to get access to government actors in, in doing your field work.
2: Yeah. Um, other questions? William, and then there's a hand in the back.
3: Yeah. Bill Armbruster. I'm, I'm, I'm a retired journalist. I'm curious as to uh, whether you know of any research that anyone has done on how journalists uh, might engage, have uh, experienced incidents of repression, or might engage in self-censorship. Are you aware of that? Or if not, it might be a subject for a future project. Next
2: survey. survey. So I I know there's research on Chinese journalists. Uh, I have a, a A colleague, Maria Repnikova, who does research on that population, but in terms of sort of foreign journalists operating in China, I think we should do a survey of them. I I think we could replicate, we could send them pretty much the same survey I have. Uh, There's not that many of them um, relative to the academic field. Uh, My sense is that they they probably have a lot more of these experiences. So being taken for tea, I mean, a lot of the academics said, oh, the reason I got in trouble was because they thought I was a journalist. And so I, I think they're on the ground. They're by definition going to sensitive areas, and so I think they have a lot more experiences with this. And we know the visa issue thing. and We can name the people um, Forsyth um, uh, others that have had visa issues. So I think it's a very real issue for them. And my hunch would be that the incidence is higher. In terms of self-censorship, um, I don't. I don't think they're maybe doing as much of it. Would be I. I don't. Not that we the academic community is. is Again, my intuition is that it's not that severe of a problem, but I think within the journalist community, maybe there's a feeling of, oh, this is my time in China. I'm going to do the story I want to do, make a, make a splash. Um, if I get kicked out, I can have a career elsewhere. So the, the, the academic career is usually single country focused. Right. The journalistic career can be single country focused, but even some of the great China journalists kind of float between different regions and much more fluidly than I think academics do. So. Maybe that, that's part of the reason, but I, I, um, uh, Mary Kay Magistad came to my class a couple of years ago and she, gave a, she talked about this and she said one of the ethos within the giant journalistic community is that if you're self-censoring, it's time for you to go. Yeah. Um, and so I, it's not to say they don't face threats. Um, I also think in terms of, of research ethics, like they, don't, they certainly care about their, their interlocutors and their, their subjects. Uh, but they don't face the same institutional process like an IRB uh, that we do. Explain and so, the IRB. Sorry, Institutional Review Board, which is a process. Anytime we do a research project on China or anywhere, uh, you have to get the approval of your university, and you have to think through any possible risk to any research subject. Um, and it can take months to get IRB approval, and I've had projects not get approved for sensitivity reasons. So journalists don't face that constraint. That's not to say that they don't care about the safety of themselves or their subjects, but I think that's a different... Um, part of the, the, the ethos as well. Yeah. Uh, I, there's a question back here, and then you had a question.
1: Hi, my name is Irving Lee.
2: Hi, Irving. Um, being a citizen of the United States, I think we have a lot of
0: self censorship in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think more it's more political bias mm-hmm. than anything else. Um, example, of course, the, the uh, Saudi Arabia Yemen situation, the fact that our government is backing mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia and providing military aid. They get censored in the media all the time, academically and uh, and also in the media, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, my question for you is, uh, what, based on your survey, what is triggering uh, the response of the government? Any particular uh, issues that
2: that's causing the response? So. Surveillance. Yeah. So. So the. it, it, again, it depends on the nature of the response. So the kind of more monitoring, intimidation, following, taking for tea, that seems to be local government officials becoming aware of an individual researcher on the ground. It's usually not topic related. So it doesn't <coughs> matter if you're working on if you're working on, on Xinjiang and you're in Xinjiang, the, the level of surveillance is higher, but it's, it's, it's often, uncorrelated with topic and mostly about just what you're physically doing on the ground that attracts attention if you're in a rural area or near a protest or maybe going to an archive and raising your profile it's basically people raising their profile on the ground that's different than the visa issue which is related to kind of the usual suspects um, Xinjiang Tibet um, ethnicity human rights minority rights uh, but it's not exclusively those topics. So there are people doing research not on those topics that have had visa issues.
0: Know, I, I mean, I don't have the national security issues with China. Yeah. Because I'm not a Chinese citizen. But do you think it's justified? Um, do I
2: think? Do I think okay. so? Do I think the visa denials are justified? Well, the actions that are carried out by the government, you think it's justified? I think. I um, um, some of these issues, I think, are unavoidable. So, so the the kind of taken for tea type experience. Mm-hmm. Um, this, I'm, I'm doing a little work with political dissidents right now. This is kind of part and parcel to the Chinese repressive apparatus. And so to somehow create a system where no foreign scholar was ever monitored or taken for an interview by a local police officer, or local government official, you'd have to completely revamp the entire Chinese political system. So I, I think some of those, those issues are unavoidable. I don't think we do it here to scholars, um, so I don't think it's necessary. I think the threat that I think the threat that foreign scholarship—I can answer your question, I guess, more directly. The threat that foreign po- scholarship poses to the Chinese government is probably minimal, um, in the sense that very few people read our scholarship anywhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, it seems silly to me that they'd be so scared about some academic pe- paper, which at best, a couple hundred people are going to read, especially if it's published in English. So I, I don't think it's necessary. I, th- I think they're, they are excessively defensive, especially about, about some of these issues. And the folks that do work on China, um, you know, the China studies community, are people that are very natural bridges between the Chinese government and, and US society, um, people who are familiar with China. And so I think they're doing something pretty clumsy, which is that by alienating this, the China community, the China studies community, um, they're kind of losing, losing that bridge unnecessarily.
4: Can I just add on this? I mean, yeah. I think there's also awareness in China that, I mean, there's sensitivities in some degree, like the local authorities who are monitoring you, that's just their job, right? Yeah. I mean, that's they, so what they're supposed to do. I think there's awareness in China that if you completely cut off access to foreign researchers, then you'd be cutting off sort of intelligent discourse about China and the people, you know, you'd, you'd be basically ruling out some of the most knowledgeable people about China Who may be critical at times, but who also may, you know, recognize the complexity of China at times, and you would leave that space to people who actually don't go to China and don't know that much about China. And I think there's actually a fairly high level of sophistication in, at least in the academic community in China, on this issue, which I think feeds back into the government. I think there's awareness that people working in China present China with maybe a little more nuance than those who don't go to China. Yeah, absolutely. You had a question and I've been...
0: You actually just touched on it, Was whether these were... What's your name? Sorry. I'm Madeline. I'm at the National Committee. Um, And it was whether these experiences are are largely driven by the local or national governments in Mm -hmm. China, which you actually just touched on. Mm -hmm. But I guess the question that I could ask then is do you think when these local authorities, you said they're just kind of doing their job in a sense, do you think it's driven by fear of a larger kind of the national government Mm -hmm. or by direct orders to... um, watch out for a certain kind of behavior, or just not wanting to attract attention, or maybe both?
2: My, you you probably have a better answer to this. My my sense um, is that it's just basically a game of risk management. So these people are doing a day-to-day job. Uh, They don't want some story about a protest in their locality getting out to the New York Times or wherever. And so they're monitoring and intimidating people to try to prevent that spread of information mm-hmm. out of their locality for which they are responsible. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they're terribly worried about you know, the publication in the China Journal mm-hmm. that comes out three years yes. from now, uh, <laughs> maybe. Uh, so that, that's my own hunch is that it is really about local risk management. Um, and often this concern about journalists is, is related mm-hmm. to that, but I don't know.
4: And my, my comment wasn't a normative yeah. statement either. I wasn't saying, oh, it's good to do I mean yeah. Yeah. But I think they're in a bureaucracy and that bureaucracy also expects that if you a foreigner shows up in your jurisdiction, you sure better be on top of it, right? Uh, and figuring out what's going on and probably writing a report about it as well. Um, and you know, and I, but I completely share Rory's analysis, right? That as I think, they're worried about looking bad, right? That they're worried about their jurisdiction looking bad in some way. I think that those fears are overstated generally. Uh, I think they're, you know, wrong to be so concerned. But I think that's, you know, that's the main thing that's driving this.
2: Um, a lot of questions. Oh, that produced like five more questions. All That's right. good. All right. Yeah. So maybe we got a few in this. Why don't you budget. take, can I suggest you just take like two or three? Uh, yeah. We got one, two, yeah. three right on this quadrant, Catherine, yeah. yeah hi,
1: Catherine
6: um, I wanted to pick up on something, Rory, that you said in passing, the early part of your remarks. You said, uh, if anything, we gravitate to research topics that are sensitive because there are greater career payoffs for that. I wondered if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Um, one of the roles I've played in the past is as a journalist, and as a journalist, certainly you're always looking for the negative because nobody's mm-hmm. interested in the positive. Mm-hmm. I think Washington Post has a special section where they send you out uh, headlines for the week that they're positive stories all in one little <laughs> place. You know, positive stories. You know, they're they're you know, good news is not news. Mm-hmm. So, is there a bias? Do you think uh, an equivalent kind of uh, subject matter bias on the academic side? Uh, that tends to, mean you're looking for a problem, as I said, from the journalist, you're looking for a problem. Is the academic also looking for a problem that uh, will lead them to look at certain kinds of subject matter? And relatedly, is there a funding bias? Uh, another hat i one is the mm-hmm. funding side. And certainly I know that a lot of work gets done because it gets funded. And if work isn't funded, then it doesn't get done. It doesn't mean people aren't interested.
2: That's a great question. So I, I, um, the funding thing, I can look at the data on this. So we we did ask a question about funding. Um, And so we can see, and have you ever had any issues getting your research funded? So I don't have the the cut of that data in my head, but that's something we should look at and and maybe we can include in the next draft of the paper. So thank you for that feedback. Um, Is there kind of a research topic bias it's hard to tell wh- how, how would one would even know if a bias exists, right? So you'd have to say these are the pool of possible research questions and these are the ones that we're actually writing papers on. Um, I, my personal sense is so you, you described a negative there's a negative bias in journalism, you want to find the negative kind of a muck breaking yeah, ethos. Been studied. Yeah.
6: There are papers about that. Yeah. Um, the extent to which, you know, journalists, for example, in writing on China it's on human rights issues or not. And it's very contested, I would mm-hmm. say studies are not definitive in a sense that anybody that most people accept them all as scientific, because then there are problems with those studies. But is there something similar in the sense that you're looking for a problem to solve, you're looking for something that constitutes a research problem?
2: Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think there's a muckraking ethos, um, although I some people internalize it. I, I, I'm starting to internalize in that a little bit myself. I think it's more about what is quote, interesting to the field, right? And and often what's interesting to the field and remember we're writing not just for each other but for the the non-China audience that hires us, right so that's that's and and the the broader community and so often those topics um it's probably easier to get a job if you're writing about human rights in China repression in China propaganda uh, censorship uh, than it is to be writing about uh, the decentralization of the Chinese bureaucracy and like. so there there's certain c- topics that are frankly uh, Sexier, uh, to, to, for lack of a better word. And so I, I think that does drive research. The, the countervailing force to that is there's also a premium on being the first to enter a research area. And so there's a natural backslide to that, which is okay, if everybody's studying censorship. So right now, um, Ben works with a, a young scholar, Molly Roberts, who's fantastic and does great research on censorship. Molly is so good uh, that it's hard to do for anybody else to do research on censorship because Molly's already gotten there. Um, and so I think that creates sort of this counter effect, which is we need to find new territory. And so I, I think the problem that this bias, topic bias, I think it, it maybe lurks in the background. My my point that I wanted to make is that if we start criticizing people for, you know, not being tough enough on the on the Communist Party, that's going to exacerbate that problem and create a real blind spot for the field, which I don't think are quite there yet. Uh, but yeah, so we had that, and then Steve, you had a question. Yeah, but, but
0: yeah. Hi. Hi, my name is Kelly. I work mm-hmm. for the City University of New York. Yep. And as a researcher, I study the Chinese legal system, especially the grassroots court system. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I'm taking classes at the CUNY School of Journalism. Mm-hmm. So now I'm working with a group of journalists to be, um, to, be to, um, to you know to learn how to write better. And I have to say, it's kind of to see how journalists or young people get trained as journalists. I'm so not surprised that academics get manipulated and misrepresented Mm -hmm. in news reports Mm -hmm. because this is exactly what I'm learning in those classes. So my question for you is um, how can we uh, convey our research journalists so we can speak to broader audiences at the same time avoid being manipulated or misrepresented by American journalists? Do you have any suggestions?
2: That's a a great question. Um, So uh, one thing that's odd of late is that there does seem to be this sort of divide between journalists and academics doing China about these sorts of issues and I've always felt that we're on the same team and we're co- sort of working together and we, we're all studying we're just using different methods to study the, the system that we care about and so um, I think I, my hope is not that this creates some sort of uh, furthers this rift I, I, my hope is that So step one, I guess, to answer your question would be, we just need more opportunities for the two communities to get to know each other and to work together. And actually, this is where the National Committee and the Public Intellectual Program is great to try to create ties between academics and journalists. Um, And I think there's training that could be happening in both directions where we have a lot to learn from them about writing compelling stories, um, thinking about the self-censorship issues. One thing we we, we should be learning from them. And maybe they can be talking to us about research methods and, and framing research a little bit more. So I just think there needs to be a little bit more cross-pollination between the two fields, and I think that would help. Uh, in terms of, of kind of broadcasting your research, you know, for this paper, one thing we've noticed, Sheen and I have noticed, is people use it to say whatever they want to say. Uh, so people are like, oh, look at how bad repression is in the China field. And then other people are like, oh, repression is not bad in the China field at all. So it's, it's to some point, your research becomes a, a tool for other people to use to make an argument, and that's unavoidable. Um, One thing I have learned from from Jan and others is that it is important to take that extra step as an academic to do some public outreach, things like this, or talking to journalists. If you do an hour-long interview with a journalist about your paper, chances are that person's going to do a better job representing you and your findings than if they just downloaded it off SSRN. And so I've, I've tried to get better about doing that myself, I'm not great at it, but I think it's a step that many academics don't take, that kind of finishing step about public outreach. But I think in the China field is particularly important.
4: Yeah. Do, you have time for, do you have time for a couple more? It's Steve. Yeah, I've been, so, I've been, ce- I've been <laughs> censoring Steve this entire time.
3: <laughs> the question, you know, you, you killed the chicken to scare the yeah. monkeys. Yeah, and The Chinese, that is part of, of kind of Chinese view of the world, and mm-hmm. what you do. So my question really is, and it doesn't relate to being invited to have tea, because I do believe as Ben said, that that's very much a local decision. Mm -hmm. But the visa denials are not a local decision. It's Mm -hmm. implemented through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and it's very much um, an attempt to intimidate uh, American academics. And does it really matter if it's five or 50 or 100? Because Mm -hmm. really, you just have to kill one chicken, Mm -hmm. and everybody knows this has gone on and that there are lines that you cannot cross. I've worked in China for 40 years. I've yeah. always known that yeah. there are lines I can't cross. Uh, that's why I've never been invited to have tea, I think. Yeah. But it's, it's, does the data with respect to that really matter? Yeah. Or have the Chinese, whoever is behind this idiotic policy, because it is small, mm-hmm. the number of people affected, but it is, it, it's a cancer and allows though those who believe that there is this self-censorship to say, of course there's self-censorship. If you are cut off from your breadbasket, if you can't go to China, that really affects your ability to continue as an academic. You know, if you're a social scientist, you can't do research on the mm-hmm. ground anymore. Don't they accomplish their, their objective without doing it to a lot of people?
2: Yeah, I I think that's absolutely right. So Rachel Stern, who's one of Ben's co-authors, has this idea of a control parable, which is like the stories we tell ourselves, well, stories Chinese citizens tell themselves about repressive events, and it has the effect of, of you only have to repress a few people for everybody to be scared and to comply. And that same thing is happening with the China field about visa denials and other issues. So one thing our paper hopefully does is it tells people a little bit about the severity of the problem Uh, Jim Millward, who has been denied a visa, who's one of the the Xinjiang scholars, um, has said that the visa issue is is perhaps overstated, and the likelihood of actually being denied uh, for a tweet or for a paper um, is is actually quite low. And so maybe our data will allow people to have a little bit more courage. Uh, Another thing I would say is there's this narrative, which I think is is wrong, that if you get denied a visa, your career is over. Um, and, And my hope for that, like, the young China scholar community, if this ever happens again, so nobody in my kind of cohort of people that I work with who are new assistant professors, nobody that I know of has had this issue yet, but let's say it happens to me or someone in my in my, my cohort group, um, hopefully that doesn't ruin things for them, and that means maybe doing some education for universities and for tenure letter writers and for other people to say that if this happens to somebody that should not be a black mark on them. It should not be a badge of honor either because there's that opposite mentality that means you're a good China scholar if you've gotten banned. Um, that's not true either. It just is something that could happen to you and we need to be supportive for those people when that happens and make sure that they know that they're, they can still do good scholarship. And there are ways to do good scholarship on China, maybe not for the anthropologists, mm-hmm. um, but for other disciplines. There are ways to continue to good scholarship on China. Um, But I had someone the other day who's a a friend of mine who's a non-China scholar, and I've been telling him that I'm starting to do more sensitive research, and he said, oh, well, do you still go to China? And the implication is that if I don't don't go to China because of research sensitivities or if something happens to me, therefore I cease to be hireable or a valuable scholar. And I I think that, that narrative needs to stop. And so... Maybe that will give people a little bit more courage, but I think your 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 use of the the Chengyu was uh, dead on, and I think that narrative, um, so that narrative is, is certainly out there. So I don't know, Ben, if you have no, I agree. I mean,
4: yeah. I I, I certainly agree on the number side, right? That as long as you are doing it to some people, it doesn't really matter if it's five or ten or twenty.
1: OK, we have reached the two minutes past the seven o'clock watching hour. We want to thank all of you for coming. And please join me in thanking our two speakers. Thank, thank you.